0: me, if you would, please, and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. The choir song is uh, one of my favorites. It's so beautiful. We pray that God's uh, house will be a place where the hurt, and the lonely, and the broken can really find healing and hope. And that's really what this message is about today. Acts chapter 2 is where we'll be reading here in just a moment. A couple of things I wanted to Uh, remind you of and and Haley uh, mentioned many of these things as you know the next um, uh, the next six weeks or so eight weeks of course we're in our 100th anniversary year the next six or eight weeks are going to be just really packed full of uh, ministry opportunities we'll be finishing the building in the next two weeks Um, it's it's almost there now but hopefully the outside work as well will be done in the next two weeks and uh, on the 20th, which is during the week, that information is in your bulletin. We'll be having a ribbon-cutting service, and you're all that are available to come out. Chamber of Commerce will be here. And then on the 23rd, of course, we'll have one service at 10. We'll be dedicating the building then, and then going to Bailey's Place for a picnic. Make sure you pick up your tickets. We want everybody to be a part of that. That's on the 23rd. Then on the 24th, we begin five days of sports camp here. Uh, that will go through the 28th, and then on the 4th we will be involved in a um, an outreach or a, 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 we'll be involved in the 4 for the 4th at Yorktown. We're sponsoring that. We're going to walk as a group in that, and uh, and then we will begin the 8th through the 12th. Spring Hill camp will be here, and then the 14th through the 17th of July we will be doing sports camp in Dunkirk. So it's going to be a busy six weeks. We have, we believe, located a building um, that will be um, at least a a footprint in the Dunkirk community. Those of you who are members, I'll be sending you a letter this week. We have to have membership approval before we can make this official. Um, But we will hopefully have a a permanent footprint in the Dunkirk community, and then we'll have to start working on that building and seeing what we're going to do with that. Uh, But we are excited. Lots of good things happening and that we are just excited to see God unfold the future for us. So be praying um, for God's will to be done. Be praying for those who are volunteering and leading. There's just a lot going on, and it's going to be an exciting summer as we move toward our 100th anniversary celebration. Acts 2 and verse number 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the spirits gave them utterance. And they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout Jews, men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, occur, the multitude came together and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and they marveled saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? How is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? And then in verses 9, 10, and 11, all of those different languages and nationalities that were in Jerusalem are listed and in verse 11 he ends Luke ends by saying that that they said we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God so they were all amazed verse 12 and perplexed saying to one another what could this mean others mocking said they are full of new wine but Peter standing up with the eleven raised his voice and said to them men of Judea and all who dwell in jerusalem let this be known to you and heed my words these are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day but this is what what you see this is that which the prophet joel spoke about and it shall come day pass in the last days saith the lord that i will pour out of my spirit on all flesh your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men shall dream dreams, and on my mitten servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then, if you will jump down all the way to verse number 36, or verse 37, excuse me, verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and your children and to all who are far off and to as many as the Lord our God shall call. Holy Spirit, um, so rich has been your presence from the very opening scripture in the 915 service we felt that you were among us and we know god that you are here today and i ask lord in these moments now as we look to your word that you would speak to our hearts just as you did in the first service challenge us by your holy spirit and lord i pray that you would shape us mold us transform us into the people that you have called us to be i pray for your anointing that i might rightly divide the word of truth Help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you. And Lord, I pray that together we will find ourselves in a greater and more perfect unity than we've ever known before, so that the power of the Holy Spirit can be at work in this place in new and incredible ways. Speak now to our hearts. Supernaturally arrest the attention of everyone in this room, and let us hear the word of the Lord today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a guest today, as Haley said, if this is your first time with us, we have a gift for you. We'd love to meet you over at the kiosk in the corner of the lobby. Today we are um, going back to the Book of Acts for the third week, and we will conclude this series next Sunday. Today we are going to look at the events of the Day of Pentecost and what the outcome of those events, um, what the, the outcome was of those events that took place. Previously, in week number one of this series, Kyle talked about the promise of Pentecost. This is when Jesus said that you are going, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem and wait, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be witnesses to me. And then he says you will go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ultimately you will be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Then last Sunday, we talked about the preparatory events For Pentecost. What were the things that had to happen? before the experience of Pentecost. And I shared with you three of them. First of all, the enthroned position of Christ. He ascended. He went back to heaven to sit at the Father's right hand so that he could deliver on his promise. His promise was that I will send a comforter to you, the Holy Spirit, who will come in my name. So that had to happen. Secondly, we talked about the unified purpose of the disciples. They had to pray together in unity. And for 10 days, they did that. For 10 days in that upper room, they prayed in unity so that they could then be ready for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then we talked about the necessity of the integrity of the church being restored. Uh, Keep in mind that Judas had defected. He had fallen. He had uh, committed treason, betrayed Jesus, and then instead of repenting, he went out and hanged himself. And so there was a defector. That had left the apostles, there was a hole there, and they had to restore that by appointing or electing a new apostle to fill that role. Today, I want to talk about the power of of Pentecost. And and I come into this uh, message knowing that I've been here 20 years and knowing that we have people that come from almost every imaginable church tradition and church background. And so we have differing opinions, different thoughts, different uh, ideologies, different understandings of what Pentecost is all about. I'm going to ask you, as always, especially when we approach subjects that maybe our backgrounds cause us to think differently on, to listen with an open heart. I believe there is a powerful word here. This is not something we should shy away from, but something that we should press into, uh, because I believe it, it will be a... Um, a church changer if we will hear what the Holy Spirit has to say. So I want to talk about the power of Pentecost. And and I want to look at what happened on the day of Pentecost. But but before we even do that, I want to talk about two celebrations. and, and, And this will be a message I'm going to preach, but I'm also going to There'll be some protracted moments of teaching, and I really want you to to listen closely to, because you will learn, and this will help your understanding. But there's two Jewish celebrations, two Jewish feasts that really inform what the day of Pentecost that we just read about in Acts chapter 2 was all about. Let me talk about the first one. It was what the Jews called, and this is something they celebrated in the Old Testament and and continued, and continues even today, but continued through the New Testament, and it was the Feast of First Fruits. In Leviticus 23, God gave Moses these instructions. He said, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land, that it would be the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to you. And you reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And the priest will wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. And notice this, on the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So the first um, festival, or the first celebration... That I want you to understand was the Feast of First Fruits. It was a one day celebration when all of Israel would come together and it would mark the beginning of the spring barley harvest. So they would come together and to mark the beginning of the barley harvest they would bring the first fruits and they would present it to the priest and he would take one sheaf and he would wave it before the Lord as an offering to him and as a celebration that the harvest has now begun. Now what is interesting when you read the Old Testament, you read Leviticus and all of the regulations that surrounded this and please really focus on this. It was to happen on the first day of the week for the Jew, that would be Monday, um, excuse me, it would be Sunday, the first day of the week after the Sabbath that followed the Passover. So, in, in that time of year when they celebrated Passover and then the Sabbath, then on the first day of the week, which would be Sunday, this is when the feast of the first fruits was to take place. Now, if you are um, biblically savvy, you will immediately know the connection. Because it's fulfillment is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who was raised on the first day of the week Sunday after the Sabbath that followed the Passover. And so we know that Jesus, the Passover season was in. Then there was the Sabbath where everybody had to stay home. And on the first day of the week, the ladies came to the tomb. But Jesus was already gone. He had resurrected. This would be the day that they would have celebrated the feast of the first fruits. Why is that important? Because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty, Christ is risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits when they would wave the barley sheep would mean this is the first but there is more to come. The resurrection of Jesus was a declaration that this is the first fruits of the resurrection, but there is more to come. How many are thankful that one day our loved ones and we, if we go before Jesus comes one day, even if we're six feet under when the trumpet sounds, we too will be resurrected with Jesus. How many are thankful for that? Jesus was the first fruits and that was the celebration that took place on the Feast of the First Fruits. The second feast that's really important and informs this text today is the Feast of Pentecost, obviously, or also known as Shavuot or as the Feast of Weeks. Again, it is described in Leviticus 23. You shall count for yourselves, watch this, from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be completed. Count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord and bring from your dwellings two wave loaves of two tenths of the ephah, and they shall be of fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord. The Feast of Pentecost, look right here, was a second one day festival that was to take place exactly 50 days. Seven weeks and one day after the Feast of the First Fruits. And here they would bring two loaves that had been baked and they would have 11 in them. And when they would present them to the Lord as on the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. And so it was, watch this, 50 days after the resurrection was the day of Pentecost. Penti is five, Pentagon, five-sided. Pentecost was 50 days after the resurrection. The Feast of Pentecost marked the end of the spring harvest and the beginning, or the first fruits, of the summer wheat harvest. The two leaven loaves would be held up before the Lord as an offering. Now count the days with me in Acts chapter 1 and verse 3. It says that after the resurrection, Jesus did what? He showed up, he appeared, he went in and out for 40 days with the disciples. And then in Acts chapter 1, we talked about it last week, he ascended, told the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem, and they tarried then for 10 days. 40 plus 10, 50 days, 50 days after the resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, is when this outpouring of the Holy Spirit That we read about in Acts chapter 2 took place. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? First of all, the house where the disciples were was suddenly filled with what seemed to be a gale force wind, symbolizing the coming into that house of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Old Testament, when Ezekiel was told to prophesy to the wind, it was the breath of God that came into the dry bones in the valley. It was the power of the Holy Spirit signified or symbolized by the wind. In John chapter 3 and verse 8, Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you can't tell where it's coming from. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God was represented by this gale-force wind that filled the house. There was an audible wind, but there was a visible fire. The tongues of fire set on each of them. As with the burning bush, it signified the divine presence. God was in the house. It was as if the pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness or at Mount Sinai was there. And so there was the wind of the Holy Spirit, the divine presence of God through the fire. And the experience of Pentecost was not only outwardly visible, but it was inwardly experienced. They were all in that room filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues all the way through the Old Testament. Anytime a person was filled with the Holy Spirit, it would affect their speech. They would speak prophetically. When Eldad and Medad were filled with the Holy Spirit, they prophesied. When Deborah was filled with the Holy Spirit, she prophesied. When Elizabeth and Mary and Zechariah were filled with the Holy Spirit, they were prophets or they prophesied so the experience of Pentecost was not just an outwardly visible thing, there was an inward experience as well. What is interesting, on the day of Pentecost, they spoke in the languages of all who were gathered there. And because of that, they were immediately able to fulfill Acts 1, chapter, chapter 1, and verse 8, where they became witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. People from all of these nations were gathered there, and they heard the apostles who were Galileans, who didn't know their language, speaking in their own native language. And it was on this day that the church was birthed. Just as the two loaves of bread at the Feast of Pentecost would be lifted up with leaven, representing sin, but offered to the Lord, so on the day of Pentecost, Jew and Gentile became the body of Christ. First Corinthians 12 and verse 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized in the body, whether Jew or Greek. In Ephesians chapter 2, God has made both one so as to create to himself one new man. And so the two loaves represent the new church that had been birthed, the body of Christ made up of all of humanity. So what do we glean from the day of Pentecost? What, what about that day where there was this rushing gale force wind that filled the house? What do we learn about the power of Pentecost? Four lessons, and I'm going to give them to you just very briefly this morning. Number one, Pentecost assures believers of a future inheritance. I want you to think with me this morning. Pentecost assures believers of their future inheritance. The Feast of Pentecost, as I've already mentioned, was a celebration of the first fruits of Israel's harvest but when they would bring those two loaves and they would give them to the Lord and offer them to the Lord as the first fruits they were also think about this they weren't just saying this is the end they didn't bring the two loaves and say this is all we got it was the first fruits it was anticipating that what you see here there is more still coming yes. this is not the end of the story so it was with the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was not all that God had to offer, but instead it was a sign that this is just the beginning. What you see here, there is much more to come. In Ephesians 1 and verse 14, the Bible says the Spirit is God's guarantee. That he will give you the inheritance he promised. And that he has purchased us to be his own people. Romans chapter 8 and verse 23. We believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of the future glory. We still long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Everybody just look here for just a moment. If you're born again today, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you've committed your life to follow Him. He is your Lord. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of you as a down payment, as a guarantee that what you are experiencing now is just the beginning of the inheritance that God has for you. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit filled them, God was saying to them, I give you this now. But there is so much more to come. When Jesus walked the earth during those 33 years, and especially his three years of ministry, he hinted that that there was more yet to come. But when it got down to that last week, he said to his disciples, it's necessary for me to leave. Because when I leave, the Holy Spirit can come. The comforter who is going to abide with you forever. I'm not going to leave you by yourself and comfortless. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. But Jesus also made another promise. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. Because in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again. That's your inheritance. And I'm going to receive you into myself so that where I am there, you may be also. You see, the inheritance of every child of God is that someday we will be in his eternal presence. Say amen if you believe that. That's the inheritance we have. But Jesus said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back to the Father and I'm going to send you a down payment of that inheritance. I'm going to send you a down payment, a guarantee, so that when the Holy Spirit nudges you, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you, when you're doubting whether you're saved or not, and the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God, not only will there be an immediate help that comes, but there will be a reminder that there is more yet to come. The Holy Spirit is a down payment until that day. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it is God who enables us along with you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us and he has, look at this, he has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I love this, as a first installment that guarantees everything That he has promised. The Holy Spirit in you. That sense that he's leading me. That he's nudging me. That he's convicting me. Should make you feel so wonderful. Because it is simply the first installment. That guarantees everything else he has promised to you. Isn't that good news this morning? So cultivate a relationship with the Holy Spirit now. Don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Don't say, oh, that's just for another group of people. Because the Holy Spirit is just a beginning of what you will one day experience. The more I know of him now, the more I feel his presence now, his nudging. The more he reveals Christ to me now. The more I will long for the fulfillments of his promise. The more I will long for his presence. The book of Revelation it's really interesting because john says the spirit and the bride say come lord jesus it's like the holy spirit in us who is showing us how great jesus is and reminding us as the down payment boy do we long to be in his presence the spirit is that down payment until that day if we as a church Or we as individuals are not experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. We should pray, God, send your Holy Spirit in a new and fresh way into my life. Pentecost assures believers of their future inheritance. Secondly, and this is the hardest point in the whole sermon. How many will raise your hand and promise me that for the next 10 minutes you will not check out? All right. How many... Oh my goodness, two-thirds of you are checking out. Sorry, Maybe you were checked out. Didn't even hear the question. I don't know. Let's try that again. How many problems about to check out for 10 minutes? Okay, so really listen. Pentecost, secondly, inspires believers to embrace the big picture, the grand vision of God. Notice what happened. At that time, there were devout Jews. I'm not going to read this all again. But there were devout Jews from every nation who were living in Jerusalem. And then they heard this loud noise. They came running. They were surprised, bewildered, because they heard their own language being spoken. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they said. These people that are talking are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our native languages, and then all of the languages are listed. We hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But there were others in the crowd that said, Oh, they're just drunk, that's all. So the wind that came was pretty loud. The sound, as of a rushing, mighty wind, that probably attracted a crowd. And certainly when the believers made their way down out of the upper room and onto the street, that attracted a crowd as well. Everybody that was there was marveling because they could hear in their own language. These Galileans who didn't know their language, they heard them speaking about the wonderful works of God. Let me just tell you this. Many nationalities, many people of all different races and backgrounds are today filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is the grand vision of God. The grand vision of God we read about in Revelation where around the throne there will be people of every tribe and every nation and every kindred, and every tongue gathered. That's the big picture. That's the the grand vision of God. It's not uh, that everybody looks alike. It's that people from all of these nationalities, tribes, tongues, backgrounds will be gathered around the throne. There are two crucial statements I want to make. And let me just tell you this. I said this in the first service. You do not need to understand these statements when I make them. All right? Don't spend the next 10 minutes trying to figure them out. Spend the next 10 minutes letting me help you understand what they mean. We're going to put them on the screen, but don't say, I don't know what that means. I'm going to help us understand what that means. Two statements. Number one, there is a unity that is disobedience, and there is a unity that is a gift of God. Number two, there is a scattering that is judgment, and there is a scattering that is actually god 's plan of salvation. let me, Let me talk about these. How many know the story of the Tower of Babel? Raise your hand if you know the story about the tower That's in Genesis chapter eleven. All right So we are way beginning of humanity all the way back to Genesis eleven. The whole earth, look at it on the screen. The whole Earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Um, Because they had bricks for stone, they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, look what they wanted to do. Come, let's build ourselves a city, ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us look at this, make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. They all spoke one language and they were so afraid of being scattered that they had this driving ambition to build a tower that would be so high that it could house them all, that they could reach into the heavens because pride has its root in anxiety. There's a fear that we won't be able to control anymore. If we get outside of our comfort zone, let me just, a moment of honesty, but remember you're in church. How many like to be in control? Raise your hand if you like to be in control. That's humanity. We like to control. And so when we sense our own frailty and our incompetence, we grow a little bit anxious, and they did too. So they wanted to build a tower of self-sufficiency and self-protection. We want to put our name in lights. We want to make ourselves grand. We have our own towers today. We have our own denominations, our own church, our small group, our political parties, our creeds. We don't want to spread out, we don't want to get scattered. We want to become our own gods, we want to make our own closed community. We want to close ourselves out to the world. This is a unity that is disobedience. It's a unity that's based on human control and domination and forced conformity. We want everybody like us. Get everybody together and make them like us. We fear we'll be scattered. We fear that we'll lose the uniqueness of us. So what is God's response to towers of self-sufficiency? Lord came down to see the city and the towers with the sons of men had built and the Lord said indeed the people are one and they have one language and this is what they begin to do now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld for them God says come let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth and they ceased building the city the unity that they had formed was a unity of disobedience. They had been told to move away, but they wanted to stay put. And so the scattering was a scattering that was judgment. Please watch this. Please hold steady with me. The languages were scattered, so they couldn't understand anyone, each other anymore. It's interesting, the Jews, um, the Jews practiced what is called the Shema. S-H-E-M-A. It's a Hebrew word for hear. It's the first word of what they recite in every worship service. Shema Yisrael, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That statement, that affirmation of worship, they call, just with one word, the Shema. It means to hear. Abraham Heschel, who is a... Jewish scholar says, speaking to the Jews, their mantra is, I hear, Shema, therefore I am. We are a listening people to God and to others. But in Babel, the language was distorted. So they could no longer hear one another and no longer hear God. Too often, listen, look right here, language becomes coded. We have words. Our words keep other people outside our group. They don't know our words. We even do that in the church sometimes. We throw around big church words so that somebody that comes has no clue what we're talking about. And our words can keep people out. They don't understand and so they stay out. That's what they were doing at Babel. So the judgment of God, the scattering that was judgment, confused the language so they could no longer hear or understand one another. But later, God would turn that judgment into salvation. Because you know what? God likes different languages. He likes the people of every nation and every kindred and every tongue. Not only does he like them, he loves them. He loves the Asians. He loves the Russians. He loves the Africans. He tolerates the Hoosiers, too, I think, maybe. (laughs) He promises he will make another unity, but this unity will not be to disobedience But it will be one that is a gift of God. Enter Pentecost. Pentecost, instead of humanity reaching up, building a tower, was God coming down. Pentecost, instead of human will exerting itself, it was God's spirit displaying himself. Fifty days after Easter, there was a rushing mighty wind. Pentecost moved from inside the house to outside in the streets. They all heard the disciples speaking the wonderful works of God in their own language. But you know what? That wasn't the only miracle at Pentecost. It wasn't just speaking. There were two miracles. There was the miracle of hearing again. In verse 6, everyone heard. In verse 8, they said, how is it that we heard? In verse 11, we hear them speaking. In verse 14, give ear to my words. And in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to heart. So not only was there the miracle of speaking, there was the miracle of hearing that led them to repentance and then baptism. The miracle of Pentecost, please hear me, is not all the languages become one. That's the conformity of Babel miracle of pentecost is that although the languages are different we begin again to hear one another instead of demanding that everyone speaks my language we are willing to sit down and teach one another our language and hear from one another we can listen we can shema again i've not been overseas a lot i've been to haiti twice ecuador once nicaragua twice there's a word that, it didn't matter if I'm in Haiti, Nicaragua, Ecuador. I could have been in many other countries. There's one word that you'll hear in every worship service that sounds the same, and that is hallelujah. It's like it's like the universal language for the people of God. We went to Quito, Ecuador several years ago. I think Kyle was 16. And this church had decided, Glides Hunnings had decided we were helping them build the church in in Quito. And uh, it was a very poor church. And uh, I never worked so hard in my life either, by the way. I'll tell you what, my goodness. Um, glad God called me to preach. I would not do well building buildings in Quito, Ecuador. Wow. Anyway, that was just a flashback that was painful all of a sudden. All right. But I got to preach to them through an interpreter. We had decided that we would buy a communion set for them. They didn't have one. They had a hodgepodge. Think about your cabinet where you shove in every dish and every cup that doesn't match. Like you have orange sippy cups and purple plastic cups and broken mugs and and mugs that you don't want the preacher to see if he comes over to the house. You like that, okay? All of those things shoved in the cabinets. That was what made up their communion set. But we had purchased them a brand new one. And uh, they had no idea. They had communion ready to go with this hodgepodge of cups and plates and I got ready to preach to an interpreter and we presented that to them and the ladies just started bawling and they went and they picked up, well I'm preaching they went and picked up their communion set, they went to the back room and they, and they reset it so they could use ours but what was interesting is even though we could not speak the same language we all knew what the bread meant, it meant the body of Christ, we all knew what the juice meant, it meant the blood of Christ we all knew what hallelujah meant it meant praise be The miracle of Pentecost is not that the languages are the same, but that though the languages are different, we can hear one another again. A scattering took place after Pentecost, but it was not a scattering of judgment like Babel. Instead, it was the saving plan of salvation. They became witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. They had been told to go into all the world, and now they go empowered and filled with the Holy Spirit. Babel turned inward, but Pentecost turned the church outward. No longer greedy, no longer selfish, but sharing all they had to a world that needed Jesus. Folks, we need Pentecost to see the big picture, to see the grand vision of God. Number three, and I'll give you these last two quickly, so hold steady. Pentecost invites believers to be open to the miraculous working of God's Spirit. I want you to listen really closely. So they were all amazed and they were perplexed and they said to one another, what in the world could this mean? Some said they're just full of new wine. They're just drinking too much. Peter stood up and said to them, these are not drunk like you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day, but this is what the prophet Joel spoke about. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit, saith the Lord. And he begins to quote the words of Joel the prophet that you can read in Joel chapter 2. And he closes in verse 21 by saying, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There were some folks there that sought the meaning. What could this mean? The mockers didn't even want a meeting. They just said these folks are drunk. They just looked at the empirical evidence and they look like drunk people. Others realize that miracles are not always backed up by empirical evidence. How many in this room believe that sometimes God can do something that just doesn't make sense to us? How many believe that? That's what happened. This was a supernatural miracle. It couldn't be explained. I mean, Peter couldn't say, well, here's what happened and and, and this is really what took place. There was no logical, empirical way to describe what had happened. He dismissed the empirical revelation. They're not drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. The first meal in Israel wasn't even till 10. The ultimate answer was this is God's work. This is what God said he would do. It is supernatural empowerment that Joel had promised. Listen to me. In a time that seemed out of control, God was at work and was going to complete his work. I want to be very serious. I want you to hear what I'm saying. Our culture today is um, out of control. And the church needs a fresh outpouring of God's spirit. Say amen if you believe that. Uh, I've been here almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years in just a few months. And you all know that I am very protective of our congregation. I, I hope that's what being a pastor is supposed to be. I'm protective. I have no interest in glad tidings. Um, Unraveling, getting into false doctrine. Uh, This is not a very theological word, but I do not want us to be wacko. How many would agree? We do not want to be wacko. But I also want you to know, look right here. I do not want us to dry up and shrivel on the vine with no life just because we're guarding ourselves from being excessive. In a time when our world is hurting and broken and out of control, we need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Well, Pastor, I've been saved. I, I, Holy Spirit lives within me. Yes, the Holy Spirit lives within you. John chapter 20, Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That was John 20. That was before his ascension. They received the Holy Spirit. I don't think Jesus is a liar, and I don't think you failed on that day. They received the Holy Spirit. When you got saved, you received the Holy Spirit. But those same disciples that received the Holy Spirit in John chapter 20 were in the upper room in Acts chapter 2 and were filled with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit overflowed them. What are you saying? I'm saying there is a subsequent work to salvation. I'm not here to talk about the signs or the evidences. I'm here to talk about open hearts that will say, Holy Spirit, do in me everything you desire to do. Because I don't want to shrivel up and die on the vine. I don't want to be Helpless to a person that is hopeless. I want to give them help. I want to give them a hope in their life. It was a subsequent work that filled the believers in the house of Cornelius, the believers in Ephesus. It was a subsequent work that was so powerful that there was a magician in Samaria by the name of Simon who when he saw the apostles laid their hands on people and they received the Holy Spirit, Simon said, I will write you a check right now if I can have that power because there's something unique and powerful and distinctive in that infilling. I'm here to tell you it's worth the tarrying, the waiting, to experience the miracle of Pentecost again. Pentecost invites believers to be open to the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. And finally, number four, Pentecost indicts believers of their selfish and sinful humanity. What's this mean? Some are drunk. No, no, Peter said, not at all. And after he explained that they're not drunk, but this is what Joel prophesied, Peter preached to them. And in his sermon, he reminded them that the Jesus that had done miracles among them, they had crucified. That Jesus that walked among you and did miracles, you crucified him, Peter said. But God raised him up, just like David had prophesied. And this Jesus, Peter said, that you crucified is now exalted to the Father's right hand. And this amazing thing that you just saw happen, Peter said, is because that Jesus that you crucified, that God raised up, who is at the Father's right hand, just poured his spirit out on you. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what do we need to do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. For the remission of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he ended by saying, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. What must we do? It cut them to heart. They saw their own sinfulness. They called out on God and repented and 3,000 were saved. I'm going to wrap this up. Listen to me very closely. So what will it take today? Oh, I man, the church may be saved, but is the church effective? We must move beyond an anxiety that acknowledges that something is wrong. I mean, we can all acknowledge, man, it just doesn't, the church isn't as powerful as it used to be. The church isn't seeing what it needs to see. We must move beyond an anxiety that acknowledges that something is wrong to a repentance that acknowledges that someone is wrong. And that someone is me. That someone is us. We've grown cold. We need a fresh wind of Pentecost to awaken us. We've become worldly. We've become prosperous. But we've grown spiritually cold. We know our future hope and our present potential. We want to embrace the grand vision of God. We want to be open to the miraculous working of God's spirits. And we want to call on his name as we acknowledge our emptiness and our brokenness and our need of him. Give me just three or four more minutes. I want to read you a few excerpts. Bishop Richard Wilkie, the bishop of the Arkansas area of the United Methodist Church from 1984 to 1996 when he retired. He wrote a book in 1986. Let me give you a little context of this. I, um, I started pastoring in 1985. I was 21. In 1986, this book came out, and our district superintendent, Charles Crank, gave every one of us in the Indiana district a book written by Bishop of the United Methodist Church called Are We Yet Alive?, I kept repeating in the first service, that was 23 years ago. I am pretty good at math, I just didn't do the math. It was really 33 years ago. Thank God for people who correct me on their way out the door. It was 33 years ago. I really was just making sure the first service was awake. I knew all along. But 33 years ago, Bishop Wilkie wrote this book. Can I just read you a a few excerpts and I'll be done. This is the end of the sermon. He says this, our sickness is more serious than we at first suspected. We are in trouble, you and I, and our United Methodist Church. We thought we were just drifting like sailboats on a dreamy day. Instead, we are wasting away like a leukemia victim when the blood transfusions no longer work. Once we were a Wesleyan revival full of enthusiasm fired by the spirit running the race set before us like sprinters trying to win the prize. The world was our parish. We were determined to publish the glad tidings in full light of the sun. Our Wesley-inspired dream and directive was to spread scriptural holiness across the continent. Circuit riders raced over the hill and valley. New churches were established in every hamlet, and our missionaries encircled the globe. Now we are tired, listless, fueled only by the nostalgia of former days, walking with a droop, eyes on the ground, discouraged putting one foot ahead of the other like a tired old man who remembers but who can no longer perform we sing oh for a thousand tongues to sing as it were as if it were an anthem instead of a testimony Thirty-three years ago, he said, We celebrated by centennials if our future were behind us. In addressing the council of bishops, I compared our church in the United States to the paralyzed man lying beside the pool near the sheep gate at Bethesda. He lay there weak and withering for 38 years, surrounded by others who were blind, lame, and sick. Our denomination is now in its 23rd year of diminishing, diminishing strength reclining close to the healing waters where the Spirit of God moves, yet remaining immobilized and infirmed, waiting for someone to carry us to the waters of health. They were in their 23rd year of decline 33 years ago. They're now in their 56th year of decline. In his closing chapter, A Time to Burn is what it's called. He repeatedly, repeatedly uses the phrase, Our world is on fire. He talks about the violence. Our world is on fire. Pornography. Our world is in fire. War and hatred. Our world is on fire. 33 years ago he said that. How much more today? He quoted Christopher Fry in The the Ladies Not For Burning who said, I've never seen a world so festering with damnation. He said that in 1986. Wilkie says, Paul understood it. God's given those people over to do filthy things their hearts desire. The world is on fire. And into that world, listen, God has called his church, his holy people. In a world burning with flames like those of hell, God has called his people to save it from death and destruction. When the church was born on the day of Pentecost, a passion for God swept over the believers and a holy flame burned with them. Then the fires of passion will destroy us fire of God, he said, can save us. We United Methodist, Richard Wilkie said, need that fire again. The church was born in the fires of Pentecost. We were born again in the fires of the Wesleyan revival. T.S. Eliot was right. We shall be consumed by fire or by fire. We will be burned up by the fires of our passions. Or we will be energized by the passionate fire of God. I want you to stand with me if you would. Please just hold steady. If you would, stand with me. In his conclusion of this book, Are We Yet Alive? I'm rereading it now again. I should have read it 10 years ago. But I'm rereading it now. In his conclusion, he ta- tells the story about Jeanette. She was consumed by sexual passion. She had been abused repeatedly. She now had had a series of sexual encounters that left her depressed. Her weight was out of control. She was lonely. She was suicidal. She came into Bishop Wilkie's office and he said, I prayed, oh God, if only the fire of God could be ignited in her, she could be at peace and he suddenly remembered, we have a counselor in our church who's spirit-filled that comes every Wednesday night. He said to Janetta, Janetta, I want you to go see that counselor. That counselor is spirit-filled and he will pray for you and he will minister to you. And then he remembered that that a small group of young adults that now meet in a building that really should have been torn down and the board wanted to tear it down but Bishop Wilkie said we need to do something with that and so they renovated and they used it and now a group of young adults is meeting and he said you need friends you need to be around believers and so you need to go to that young adult group and then he remembered there was a prayer group that met every Friday night prayed for revival he said you need to go to that prayer group every Friday night and Jeanette went to all three Bishop Wilkie said, "I, I didn't say much about Jesus, but the counselor called me and said that after several interviews, he and Jeanette concluded their final session with prayer and he literally saw her straighten up. Her shoulders lifted. She dried her eyes. She beamed with a new joy in her heart. Now when I see her trim figure, she's laughing and she's surrounded by new friends. Her mother... Richard Wilkie said, wrote me a letter which proved to me that God is still alive. She wrote, Jeanette has now come home. She didn't mean that she had come to her hometown. She meant home to God, home to her family, home to her true self, home to the church. The fires of guilt, loneliness, and sexual craving had been quenched, and a new fire burned within her. He ended by saying this, I thought Acts 2 was happening all over again. Acts 2 says many miracles and wonders were being done and everyone was filled with awe day after day. They met as a group in the temple and they had their meals together in their homes, eating with glad and humble hearts, praising God. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. In 1986, he wrote, the Methodist church can burn again with the fires of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit can empower us to speak in all the language Languages of the world can enable all women and men, old and young of every race and nation, to be inviting witnesses of peace and can inflame the mission of Jesus Christ to save a lost and lonely world. We will be consumed by fire. Or by fire. Methodist Church, 1986. Spirit-filled bishop said things have to change. I don't have to tell you, you read the news. 33 years later, You know where that great people of God with a great heritage is today. Brother Craig, I remember it, handed me that book and all the rest of us that book and said, This is us in 20 years if we don't change. Well, here we are, 33 years out, and we've become comfortable. We have a beautiful building, and people's lives are being changed. People are happy and we have new initiatives. But, but I long to see people's lives that have been broken, healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Marriage is fixed. addictions broken. People saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. I hope you do too. I have no interest in us trying to do it like somebody else did it or even have a preconceived idea what it looks like. I just know That your pastor will say, I need the Holy Spirit working fresh in my life. And I hope that everyone in this room says, Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place to do in us and in me everything you desire to do. Bow your heads with me. How many would just slip a hand and say, I want to say for myself, my, my temple, and for this church. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. How many would raise your hand with me and say, burn in my life? Would you just tell him that now, not just by an upraised hand signifying to me, but would you say to him right now, you can say it out loud, you can say it in your heart, but say, Holy Spirit, yes. I mean that when I raise yes. my hand. Yes. I want you to fill me. I want you to flood my soul. Yes, I want you to change my life your presence to be overflowing in me so that I can minister not out of my emptiness, but out of my overflow. Hallelujah. Would you all just make your way toward the front? We're going to close singing this chorus together. Just step out and get as close to the front as you.